Thank you. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, uh, a two-part message, not really a series. I don't like to call series, and they're just two messages. Really, this is just a three-hour, uh, not a three-hour sermon. This is just a two-hour sermon that's uh, cut in half, or uh, hour and a half sermon cut in half. So rather than trying to cram it all into one, uh, sometimes we just split them in half and see what uh, God can do uh, with two parts. So don't miss next week, because if you miss next week, you'll, you'll miss the good part of the message. So today's kind of the difficult, kind of the, uh, uh, the pre-op part of the message. Sometimes that's not the fun part. Um, not that the surgery is a fun part either. That's kind of a bad analogy, but you get the idea. Uh, this, the good part's next week. So uh, I, I think that today's going to be a, a, an important part. Um, just might require uh, some more tough conversations. And I think we're going to um, get a lot of good answers from the questions that we ask and that this text asks over our life today. So we're going to open up and read uh, Matthew chapter 6, going to begin in verse number 19 and read to the end of this chapter, one that you're very familiar with. You probably can quote some of these verses, if not many of these verses. And if you haven't ever committed some of them to memory, maybe today would be a good day to highlight and uh, make a commitment to. So Matthew 6, this is Jesus. He's uh, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous sermon where he just kind of lays everything on the table about Christianity, uh, about what it means to follow him, what it means to serve him, and uh, what it means to live for him and, and honor him with our lives. So he kind of just goes from the very basic, uh, how our attitude should honor him, how our lifestyle should reflect him, to the decisions that we make, um, what, how the, what they should look like. So that's kind of the basis for what this conversation is. Um, so we're jumping in midstream, but Jesus taught this message across a series of days, a series of weeks. So it was more like there were parts to it. So we're jumping into to kind of its own little section. Uh, Matthew 6, verse number 19 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasure in, on the earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is just this kind of all-encompassing word for material things, earthly things, uh, that, that contrary, contrast or that contradict the things of God. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toll nor spin. And yet I say, you, to, say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles, or the unbelievers, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. 
sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, there are a thousand amazing things about living in this country. And one of the things that makes being an American super unique and allows us to be super blessed and super uh, prosperous is the way our economy works, how it's structured, how the market is structured. Now, we talk about free market capitalism. We all have opportunities that are given to us that uh, most of the world uh, never even get a taste of. Um, Even the things that aren't as they should be or are slanted against us still leave us better off than 99% of the rest of the world. Uh, However, the way things work can and unfortunately remind us of how cutthroat things can be even in uh, such a great country as, as ours how silly things can get in the in an economy that is so market driven so consumer driven that's always based on trying to sell us something and get us to buy something uh, as great as it can be as it is that you can buy something uh, from order it from your fingertips even or you can go and buy anything that you want from any given store um, as great as it is that you can buy what you need at a fairly reasonable price. If you pause and realize how it all works, sometimes it's a little demoralizing um, uh, because we're all kind of just hamsters in the wheel and and it's it's important that we keep on spinning and keep on turning the things so that the things keep on moving. Um, We'll all, you know, we're always being sold something. We're always being marketed to. uh, The entire economy relies on new things and better things and improved things and us buying into that. Um, You know, if you've been at the grocery store or the supermarket just this past week, you know, you can't help but notice as soon as the calendar turns from October to November, um, all the candy that uh, was, you know, $30, $40 a bag is suddenly half that price or even even cheaper than that, right? Just a day later, um, you know, it's kind of wild, but, but that's supply and, and that's demand. Uh, and, and it's also this idea that what drives our economy um, are things that have a certain value for a certain period of time. Uh, the reason why any given business is always pushing to make a sale is because the product they have today is the, is the most profitable it's going to be today. And if they wait a day or a week or a month, uh, the value is probably going to go down so badly that they're not going to make any profit off of it. So that's, it's all about, hey, selling it to you right now before, uh, you know, before you know, suddenly they, they, they lose out. So that's why as great and luxurious our economic environment can be, it can also be a little hostile, a little bit chaotic, uh, and, and it can always be a little bit overwhelming uh, and, 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 uh, and, and uh, super stressful for anybody that's trying to sell something, especially, you know, other than a few businesses out there, most everyone is carrying products or providing services that they have every incentive to get you to try to buy it today, uh, right now. So, so the reason why Walmart tries to sell you Halloween in August and Christmas in October is, is because they're making these giant bets on this given season and they're buying so much stock that if they don't sell it all in a certain window of time, they're going to be sitting on dead inventory and they're going to lose a, a, lot, a lot of money. So it's a vicious cycle, but it's kind of what keeps, it keeps the world turning, or at least our country turning. So there's always something new coming around the corner. So whatever's on the shelf has a finite window to make maximum profit. So everybody's backs are against the wall in, in, that, kind of, in that kind of environment. Now, now, that stuff really doesn't matter to us because all we care about is getting the best deal. But we deal with this in our own way as a product of living in this kind of you know, economy-driven world. Um, what we deal with is that we know that everything that we spend money on, everything that we work hard for and invest in, we understand that everything that we buy is losing value as 
soon as we buy it. Everything that we invest in, everything in, except for a very few things and, and a very few, you know, very most of out, mostly out of our range of, of, of purchasing anyway, for most of us, everything that we own, everything that we buy, everything that we invest in is always depreciating. It always is it's going through, it has a depreciating value. And it's this nefarious cycle of depreciation. It's kind of built into our market um, that if we never needed more or newer, then eventually we quit buying anything and eventually there would be no more hamsters in the wheel. So it's kind of important and it's kind of baked into the system that everything has to always be depreciating so that you and I have to keep spending more money. Now, a lot of it has to do with the fact that everything that's material is going to eventually wear out. So it's not just that somebody's trying to con us, con us over. It's not just that someone's trying to pull one over on us. The reality of living in a material world, things break, things wear out, things don't last forever. So, you know, as much as you'd love to keep using that same product that you've used for, you know, five, 10 years, eventually it's not gonna be worth that. And some things don't even last a few weeks at, 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 in this world. So uh, we kind of live in a world where things are not gonna last forever because that's just the nature of material things. And, and after a while, no matter how much we take care of something, no no matter how much we, you know, keep something up and, and in, its, in its best condition, eventually it starts to depreciate. This world, for the most part, sort of operates on this slope of depreciation or by the law of diminishing returns, as in things are going to be worth less and the, the more you put into it doesn't guarantee that it's going to give you that amount in return or, or more. Uh, for any number of reasons, our ability to get the most out of something, someone's ability to, get, to get, give us the best constantly, or something, our product's ability to always be as good as it was the day we bought it, um, everything sort of exists on a timer. Everything kind of has diminishing returns built into it. It's just a product of materialism. Over time, what we get out of something declines ever more increasingly. Now, none of this is news for you. We don't have to take an econ class in college to figure all this stuff out. We all know this. It aggravates some of us more than others. And you may be wondering, why are we talking about this in church? Uh, because all this stuff just bums us out and being reminded about it in church is not really the, most, uh, the best feeling to have. But, but the reason why we're talking about it today and the reason why we're framing this entire conversation around this idea that we live in a world where things are always depreciating and the things that we invest in are always diminishing in the return they give to us, the reason I'm bringing that up today and the reason we're talking about it is because Jesus often framed many a sermon with this reality. And if you've read a lot of Jesus and you've studied a lot of Jesus, you know that Jesus often used this reality that we live in that we feel often overwhelmed by, but we can't do anything about it. Jesus used this reality to present us a better way. Jesus used the life's fleeting nature, our life's fleeting nature to sell us on, to promote to us Christianity. He used the fact that we live in a world where we're constantly battling against depreciation, against diminishing returns, to sell us on Christianity. Jesus was constantly alluding to and outright referencing the material struggle and frustration in order to get our attention and cast a greater vision over our lives. He appeared, uh, he appealed to that part of us that gets frustrated when our own efforts feel like fool's errands. That part of us that works hard but then gets discouraged when the return from our investment is less than we would have hoped or the longevity just isn't there. Jesus knew that this is something all of us are constantly aware of and legit lose heart over. So this was often the starting point. You may say, well, it's a strange starting point, but when we get into it, I think it actually is very appropriate. This was often the starting point for how Jesus explained Christianity. Jesus' invitation 
to follow him was often pitched as a much more fulfilling alternative to all the other endeavors that we get so wrapped up in. And we get wrapped up in a lot. And whether following Jesus means unfollowing all those other things we are involved in or committed to, that's not the point. The point is to contrast all the things that we invest in and all the way the world comes up short. All the while, Jesus is inviting us to step into a lifestyle, into opportunities that calls into question. Why wouldn't we devote at least a portion of our lives to Jesus when considering his promises, seeing as to how we devote all of our lives to causes that extract much more than they give. So this, is the, this is the premise that Jesus is coming at us from. This is kind of the, the starting point just to get us to think a little bit. Jesus is inviting us and he's asking us the question, why wouldn't we devote at least a portion of our lives to Jesus? We're considering his promises, seeing as to how we devote all of our lives to goals and causes that extract much more than they give. When you put it that way, it kind of forces us to stop and think, doesn't it? Jesus was the master communicator and he always, was a, was a, always has a way to force his audience and his readers to wrestle with his questions. He would always approach people who were entrenched in the accepted way of living life. And he would always ask, why are you doing it that way when you could be doing it this way? Now, Jesus did not do this in a condescending, condemning fashion. Even though we may react and we may feel as if he's condemning us. We're going to feel as if he's talking down to us. We're going to feel as if he's being totally insensitive and, and, and just not even understanding our situation. But I promise you, Jesus never approached this with a, in a condescending, condemning fashion. The reality is that Jesus knew things about life that nobody knew before he ever showed up. And the things about life that we still get so, so, so wrong, he offers us a better way. He forces us to wrestle with questions that we otherwise would never ever consider because we live in a world that only affirms and only, only encourages us to stay in the trench that we feel like we can't get out of. So the common starting point for Jesus was to call into question our commitment to things that don't have the capacity to reward us with the respect to how much they require of us. So let me break that down. That we are all committed to so many things and they don't mind telling us what they demand of us. So many things in this world, they say, you have to do this. You've got to put this much into it. You've got to give me this much of your time, this much of your energy, this much of your commitment, this much of your money. This world is always saying, if you want to live here, you've got to put this much into it. And Jesus says, listen, listen, I know, I get it, I get it. But the things that you're pouring your life out for, have you ever considered they don't have the capacity to pour back into you with respect to what you're giving to them? To be clear, Jesus never came and said, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be working. You shouldn't be saving. You shouldn't be investing. You shouldn't be giving yourself to X, Y, and Z. Jesus rarely ever showed up and said, well, I don't think you should be spending your time doing that. He rarely, and that's what makes it so uncomfortable because Jesus just leaves it open. He doesn't come to us and say, well, I think you should do this instead of that. He just says, I want you to think about what you're getting out of what you're doing. And I want you to come back to me and I want you to tell me if that's, uh, that's a legitimate, uh, uh, worth, worth your time. He loved to shine a light on all the things that we pour ourselves 
into and how we pour ourselves out. And he just asked the question, why are you doing that? Are you happy with what you're getting back from that? Yeah, there's some return. But is it enough for what it demands of you? There's an old Greek legend about a man named Sisyphus. You've probably seen this image before. The legend is that the Greek gods cursed him to push this boulder up a hill until he could get to the top. And the story goes that he, he never made much progress, as you would expect, because there was more working against him than strength within him to move the boulder. Jesus exposed how committed and bought into this life's grind we are. And then he just asked the question. He just asked the question. I see how much you're pouring into all these things. And I get it, I get it. I know why, you've got reasons. I get it, we'll get there. But why not carve at least a portion of your life for something that might actually pay off one day? All right, here's what I know about you and what I know about me. When a preacher comes at us and starts talking about how we're living our life, how we're committing our time, how we're investing our, our lives, X, Y, and Z, we feel a little bit attacked. We feel a little bit like someone's trying to pry us open and get a little nosy and look into our heart and, and try to tell us what we should do with our time, lives, money, all the things that we have. We've got a finite number of minutes in every day, a finite number of days a week, all this stuff. We feel like someone's trying to pry us open and say, you should do this instead. And I get that. <laughs> but we get defensive. Most of the things we're committed to, invested in, we aren't necessarily doing out of delight. That's the reason why we get defensive. We're doing a lot of things because we have to. The pressure of life has driven us to cast all these irons in the fire, so we're just trying our best. I, I hear you. I have that same response when I have these conversations in my head, and I have a lot of conversations in my head. Uh, hopefully, not as many, you know, hopefully, you don't have as many as I do. But isn't it true? That doesn't make us any less unfulfilled and burnt out by how tireless and frustrating the grind of life can be. Even though we've got good reasons as to why we're so committed and why we're so strong, that doesn't make us feel any better, does it? I mean, both things can be true. You can be doing what you've got to do, but it can also be said that the things that you have to do, they don't nearly have the dividends or provide the dividends based on what you put into them. So that's the tension that Jesus spoke, often spoke about. And that's the tension that he invites us to step into. Not to cause you to question your responsibilities, not to cause you to, to think, well, I don't, I'm not gonna do anything or just give up and, and live carelessly. No, no, no. He's, he, he's doing this to make us think, what, what really matters in life? What really is, should be my number one, number two, number three priorities? And here's what Jesus knows. And I think you know this too. As necessary as all of our obligations are, we are prone to putting off what's most necessary. Isn't it true? As necessary as all the things that we are committed to doing are. I'm not saying you don't gotta do that. I know there's due dates. I know there's time that isn't always gonna be there. I know what he wants and she wants and they want. I get all that, right? We live in a pressure cooker. As necessary as all these burdens are and as obligated as we are to do all these things and commit to all these things, we are prone and we have a bad habit of putting off what's at the very least as necessary. What I would say, what I think you would say is most necessary. 
So we've stepped into the tension, or at least you've been invited to step into the tension. And the passage of scripture that we are stepping into to get really in the most, maybe the most uncomfortable place you could get when it comes to Jesus examining your life is Matthew 6. And, and just a warning, we've already read it, but my introduction to this subject is much more delicate than Jesus's. Not that Jesus doesn't offer grace. He does, but he often unloads with both, with both barrels and then says, here's, here's some grace. But, but, but honestly, anything that Jesus ever says to us, even if it stings a little, can we all agree that it's a gracious thing to hear truth? when otherwise left to ourselves, we wouldn't know the truth. Can we agree on that? That even if you don't like what the truth is, it's a gracious thing to hear it because otherwise we'd just be in the dark and we'd just be left in misery. I think so. I think all of us agree on that deep down. So Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus introduces this and he starts by saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Now, what if we took Jesus' commands as black and white as we took, say, the Ten Commandments? Isn't it kind of lopsided that we don't take Jesus' commands as important as every other command the Bible gives? I mean, if you've been around my teaching, the church's teaching, you know that we do this. If Jesus says, do not, or if Jesus says, do, that should be given as much priority or more priority and attention than, than anything else in the Bible. Jesus, God in flesh, the one who died for your sins and rose again. Whatever he says should not be taken as a suggestion, should not be taken as, uh, as, as a thing I might should consider. No, when Jesus says something, it's as a much a command as anything in the Bible. Right? Why did Jesus come to this earth? to die for your sins. What does the Bible say that Jesus came to do? To demonstrate God's love. God shows his love in that Jesus dies for your sins. For God so loved the world. So anytime Jesus says, do this or don't do that, don't you think he's saying it because he loves you and wants the best for you? Can we agree with that? Don't you think when Jesus says, do not do this, don't you think he means it out of love? Because if we do what he says not to do, or if we don't do what he says we should do, don't you think it's gonna hurt us? Jesus never, ever, ever, and maybe I think I link a lot of people have this wrong idea of God and, and Jesus in general. Jesus never, ever, ever gave a command out of principle. Jesus never crossed his arm and said, you should do it my way because I say so. He always said what he said to us because he loved us and wants the best for us and knows that we will not get that best on our own. There's two reasons why the Bible gives us commands. Obviously, so that God can be glorified. But as equal to that equation is that we might be benefited and we might be blessed. There's not a commandment in the Bible that's only about glorifying God. Yes, it glorifies God. Yes, it's about him. But every commandment that God gives us is that we might be most benefited and most blessed. You can bet on that. So Jesus calls into question how we feel it necessary to store up treasures for ourselves on earth. To which we say, well, yeah. How else am I going to support uh, myself? How else am I going to support my family? How else am I going to accomplish my goals, achieve my dreams? What other option is there, Jesus? Let me say, let me say this. So I think you know this. Jesus knows that our response to this is a bewildered, a bewildered kind of, I don't understand. 
Jesus knows that our response to do not store up treasure on earth is, Jesus, how do you expect me to live? He knows that's your response. But he still said it, didn't he? So if he says it, knowing that we have a good reason for why we do it, that must mean we should continue to listen to what he says, right? Now he brings down the mood by saying, hey, what happens to all that treasure? All those memories eventually, what happens to all that stuff? It's either taken away or it's left behind. So Jesus offers an alternative. And you may say, Jesus, you didn't even let me ask questions. He, Jesus operates like this. He, he lets you ask questions later. He says, hey, I'll give you an alternative to storing up treasure on earth. You should, verse 20, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where there are no thieves, there are no de depreciation, there is no diminishing returns. It's only eternal reward. So instead of doing it for the earthly gain, you should do it for the heavenly gain. And, and we're all raising our hands asking questions, but well, Jesus, how does that work? And what about, do I need to do that instead of this? And I've got a lot of questions. And he says, I, I, got, more, I got more things to say. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and this is really his motive. This is his motive. He ratchets things up here. Jesus came to earth to sink your heart to heaven. He came to earth to help you get in line with God's purposes. He's trying to get you to step into and be in step with God's plan for your life. He designed you. He knows you better than you could ever know yourself. He says, I know how to get your heart shifted from this earth, from material things to heaven and God's plan for you. And here's how you do it. You might not like it, but here's how you do it. If we relocate some of, most of, all of, best case scenario, our treasures to heavenly things, our hearts will follow. That's Jesus' solution. He says, I, listen, listen, I know, I know, I know, I know you got a lot of good reasons. I know it, I know it. But the problem I have with you investing in this earth is your heart goes with your investments. And the only way for me to get your heart is to get a hold of where you spend your time, your energy, your resources, your attention, your affection, your money. The only, Jesus says, I designed you. I know how it works. The only way I'm going to get your heart is if I get you to let go of that stuff and to let loose of that stuff and reallocate it toward me. And this is Jesus who knows it all. He says, I know it's not about the treasure. It's about your heart. But I can't get your heart because your heart has followed your treasure. Are we on the same page? We get, we tracking with this? So our hearts follow our treasure. Our hearts follow what we treasure the most and what we invest in the most. So don't you see that Jesus is trying to have a backdoor approach, this sort of backdoor way of getting us to realize our hearts are in the wrong place? So then he says in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. Now what, what he says, means by that is, our, our eyes guide our lives. Where our eyes are focused on, it probably reveals what our hearts are set on. Does that make sense? That what you are staring at is what your heart is fixated on. And maybe not physically staring, but what the, the thing you keep your eye on, the thing you're always thinking about, talking about, you know, researching about, talking, you know, looking into, the thing that you're always looking at and thinking about and, and, and planning around, that's where your heart is. So if you want to know where someone's heart is, look at where their eyes are at. And if you want to know even deeper, look at what they treasure the most and what they spend and give their most life to. So he rolls his sleeves up and he says, let me just be honest with y'all. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. No one. I know you think you're pretty good at it. 
I know you think you're doing a pretty good job. And I listen, you are doing an amazing job at juggling all these things that you're having to juggle. You live in a world where there is so much on your shoulders. I get it. I love you. I'm, I, I, that's why I'm here for you. you. You have so much on your plate right now. But can I just be honest with you? You cannot serve two masters. You can't. You may think you're doing a good job at serving two, three, four, five masters, but the reality is you're doing a bad job at serving all of them. And the one that matters the most is the one that Jesus is here to talk about. So how, no matter how uncomfortable this makes us, how, how intrusive it is, no matter how complicated all the reasons we have is, Jesus is forcing us to wrestle with some questions. Who is our master? Not master A, master B, master C, master... No, no, we don't have more than one. Who is your master? Who or what are you serving with your lives? And you know, Jesus says, if you want me to, you want me to tell you, I'll tell you who you're serving. I'll look at where you spend your time, your money, your resources, your energy. I'll show you who your master is. You may not agree with what I, my, my deduction. You may, not, you may say, whoa, whoa, Jesus is not like that. Jesus says, I, I, unfortunately, it is. Unfortunately, it is. What kingdom are we building? What cause are we championing? Ultimately, you are the only one that can answer these questions. But I think these questions are necessary because they help bring the true motives to the surface. Because a lot of us, we're just doing what we've seen other people do. We're following the line the world is in. We're just, it's monkey see, monkey do. I'm doing what everyone else is doing because there's no option for me. And I get it. That's what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. He's trying to cause us to examine our lives, our energy, our resources, our time, our investments, so that we'd ask ourselves the question, are you happy with where you're spending your life? Are you happy about this? Do you feel good about it? And he drops this truth bomb on his audience who had legitimate concerns, legitimate fears relative to us. I mean, they were literally living hand to mouth. They were living day to day. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have college to pay for. They were just trying to eat and live and, and have clothes. Now, you, our, our situation is ratcheted up, but it's still relative. It, it, all this stuff still relates to us. All this stuff is still true to us. It's just on a different scale. They were facing dire hurdles, and yet he says to them, maybe more insensitive to them than it ever would be to us, he says, hey, all this frantic behavior you developed, you've justified, you've argued is necessary. You pour out so much into all these channels, and yeah, 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 responsibility, opportunity, bills, dreams, goals, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus says, not me, Jesus says, don't do that. You, you've made some bad decisions. And I know, I know, I know your point, you know, point the finger back at him. Can you make it better? He says, yeah, I can make it better. Jesus says, if that's all that your life is wrapped up in, you need to reevaluate your life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure. Do not seek after and store up treasures only pertaining to earthly hopes and dreams, which at best will depreciate. At worst, it's just a waste. And I know this is kind of, oh man, you're really making life sound good. No, I'm just showing you that this is the earthly life without God in it and without God at the center of it and without him making a purpose out of the things that matter most and without him getting rid of the stuff that matters not at all. If we invest everything to this earth and we pour everything to the things that have nothing to do with the Lord and have not, he is not at the center of them, our families, our, 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 our dreams, our goals, all these things, if we don't have him at the center telling us what to do and how to do it, at best we have a depreciating value. At worst, we have a waste. In many cases, the hollowness and vapidness is there from the onset. We are all deceived by fool's gold. 
And so Jesus says in verse 25, he says, I know what your excuses are. Now, again, if you think, this is, if you think any of this has been a little bit intrusive, I get it. I'm, I'm sure, hey, I don't know your life. I don't know why you do what you do. Who am I to say you should do something different? Jesus says, though, Jesus, the one who died for you, the one that loves you more than you could ever imagine, Jesus says, I know your reasoning for doing the things that you do. It's because you worry so much. It's because you're so concerned about having what you need tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He says in verse 25, therefore, I say to you, again, just as important as thou shalt not worship another god, thou shalt not lie, kill, steal, just as important as all that, do not worry about your life. Do not be anxious about your life in an, in an earthly sense. Isn't there more to life than that? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And, and your answer to that question might be, I don't know, is there? Maybe you don't know if there's more to life. And maybe you're considering right now for the first time, is there more? Because I'd like for there to be. So Jesus leans in and says to us, yes, there absolutely is. He invites us to something that seems insipid. It seems silly. In verse 26, he says, look at the birds. You're trying to pay your mortgage. You're trying to feed your kids. And Jesus says, look at the birds. How about no, Jesus? I don't want to look at the birds. Because the bird, that, that, that doesn't make me feel better. And Jesus says it can make you feel better. Look at the birds. They neither store, they neither sow nor reap. Yet your heavenly father feeds them because you are valuable. But we spend all of our life valuing everything but what matters most, don't we? We value stuff and opportunities and material things when the most valuable part of us is depreciating even worse. He says, look at the birds and he goes on and he asks about the clothing. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor spin and they're more arrayed in glory than Solomon was, he says in verse 29. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. See what Jesus is trying to get trying to expose? When it comes down to it, we have not trusted in him to the degree that we should. Because if all this sounds impossible to us, if all this sounds absolutely absurd to us, it reveals that we have not put our faith in him as we should. And he says, do not worry, therefore. Uh, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after these things, the unbelievers seek after. But your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. As for you, as for you, and if, if you're sitting here and you feel like this has just left you in this kind of tense place of, making you feel bad about what you do and not really making you, providing you a solution to what you should do. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Being filled with the things that mean the most, matter the most. And all these things shall be added to you. Now again, do you not think the same Jesus that said, don't do that, promises you that if you trust him and do what he says you should do, you will not have any needs that aren't met. So as harsh as Jesus might seem when he says, don't do what you're doing, how much more comforting is what he promises if we can just get through the tension? So when Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, he's saying this. It's more than just not worry. 
It's don't be so driven about this life that you never stop and make time and room and provisions for the next life. Do not be so beholden to this life's demands that you never even consider what the kingdom of God offers you and requires of you. I get it. This isn't easy because we've got so much that we're tethered to and so much has its hooks in us, doesn't it? The only response to this, the only path through this is to navigate and negotiate with yourself about what Jesus is putting in front of you. Sit down with yourself, with your family, with those that are applicable. Start examining what are you tethered to? What has its hooks in you? And process all that you've committed to and all that you're prioritizing one thing at a time. You cannot do this all at once. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic wand that you wave that makes everything, you know, all the commitments right. This is something that we've got to sit down and do one thing at a time. Where there are wrong priorities, we've got to examine that, evaluate it, and find a way to shift the weight toward Jesus. It takes one knot at a time. In a few weeks, maybe you've already done this, but you're going to unbox Christmas stuff, and there's always that bundle of Christmas lights that looks like a plate of spaghetti, Right? And if you start just pulling those lights through just haphazardly, the knot gets worse, doesn't it? You know how you get it out of the knot? You know how you get it all untangled? All the knots and bundles must be untangled one at a time. It's crazy how life works, isn't it? Because when you pack up for Christmas, you throw all those lights into a bucket and they were all nice and straight, but you put them all in a bundle, you throw them in the box, you shove it into the attic and you get it out the next year and it's a mess. And you think, who got in there and twisted them all together? I don't know. But it's just how life works, isn't it? Nobody plans on being tangled together, tethered to the wrong things, cooked to the wrong things. It's just how it works. Jesus is not asking you to seek the kingdom of God so that he can look down and say, well, they're looking at me. He's not doing this just so he can say, hey, they're on my side. God has something incredible that he wants to unleash upon your lives. But first, we've got to untangle ourselves from whatever could be holding us back. So much of this world gets the best of us, the most most of us, the most from us, before we even consider what God wants to do and what God can do. Jesus is simply trying to turn that approach right side up. So before you go, I want to show you one last story that drives this whole message home. It's a story between Jesus and his two friends, Martha and Mary. The story goes in Luke 10 that they went on their way. Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She was indignant that her sister was just sitting there wasting time. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Here's the line, which cannot, will not be taken away from her. Before you spend your life on things that will be taken from you, would you just memorize this verse and let Jesus speak grace and truth into your life. Mary has chosen the good portion because the good portion cannot rust or decay 
or depreciate. Martha was doing what she had to do, but so was Mary. Jesus did not condemn Martha, but he did offer to free her. And and can I say this? Jesus is not condemning you for having so many irons in the fire being so overextended, but he is offering to set you free and show you that there's a much better way. He is offering to help you untangle your heart. All of us are so stressed, so strung out, even those who are retired and rich, they've got so much going on, it begs the question, are you really enjoying life? Jesus wants us to know that if we're going to get the most out of this life and not allow life to get the most out of us, we've got to bring everything that's in our hands to him and allow him to lead and guide and direct us with what he wants us to do with it. Before that even, we've got to bring our entire life to him, our whole hearts to him and say, Jesus, I'm bringing you my messy, complicated, conflicted box of priorities. Would you help me untangle them and put you at the center of them all? If you want to get the most out of this life, we all know that most everything in this life is depreciating. The dividends are diminishing. If we want to guarantee some kind of gain, Jesus offers to untangle our compromised hearts by showing us the only sustainable, satisfying way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that look like? Now, here's a starting point for you. This might be a little bit of a mouthful, but it's the starting point. Bring him your heart, your hopes, and your dreams. It starts with you. Before you get anybody else involved, it starts with you. You bring him your heart. You bring him your hopes. You bring him your dreams. You tell him why you're doing what you're doing. You explain to him. He already knows, but you should explain it to him because it helps you see it. You explain to him why you're doing this, why you're doing that, why you're committed here, why you've invested in that, why you're so caught up in all these things, why they got their hooks in you, why it got its hooks in you, why you're tethered to all these things that are taking you away from what you should be focused on. You come to God and you be honest. Here's my heart. Here's my hopes. Here's my dreams. Here's why I'm doing this. And then you bring your relationships to him. And then you bring your responsibilities to him. Then you bring your treasures to him. Then you bring your talents to him. And you say, God, here's what you've given me. How can I put you at the center of it all? How can I seek you first? I've got to untangle some knots first. I've got to, get, I've got to back up and, and untangle all this first. And then I've got to figure out how to commit it back to you. But it starts with that surrender. It starts with that act of, of surrender. And there's so many more categories, but this is the starting point. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus at the center of it all? Are we benefiting from his gifts as he truly desires and offers us? God wants us to be whole and complete. And if we are anything less than that, if we're struggling to get even close to that, it may suggest that how we've been conducting our lives, investing our lives is not as he intended. It's not as he enables. Obtaining a whole heart is a little complicated, but the freedom is worth it. However difficult the process is, being untangled is always worth it because it means that our hearts are more whole. It means our hearts are full of more of Jesus. So if you've stepped into this tension with me this morning, if you've heard Jesus say to you, don't do that anymore. And your response is, well, Jesus, I don't know how I'm not gonna do that anymore because I ha- my life functions around me doing this. Just know the one who says that to you loves you so much. And the one that says that to you says, if you just trust me, I promise you that I'll bring you out of this knot. I'll untangle this with you, but you've got to work with me. You've got to understand that what I've showed you is revealing your heart to you. And we've got to get your heart empty of that stuff and full of the right stuff. 
So I think for a lot of us, it starts with surrender. It starts with coming to God and saying, God, I've got a lot of things that aren't as they should be. I've got a lot of things in the irons in the fire and I've got a lot of things put in front of you. And God, I need you to help me see what is not as it should be. I'm surrendering to you. I'm bringing it to you. And I want to seek you first for the good of my own faith in you, for the good of my family, for the good of the people that rely on me, for the good of the people that need the most out and the best out of me. God, I don't want the world to get the best of me and leave not much left. I want you to get the best of me so that I might be the best that you've called me to be. So would you all come with me in that attitude of surrender? And as Jesus says, do not do something that's so hard not to do. Would you hear his invitation to follow into a much better way, a much more liberating way? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for speaking truth and grace into our lives. Lord, thank you for showing us that Jesus loves us and that he has the best in mind for us, yet our lives are so complicated and our things are so, so tangled up. And we look at the story of Mary and Martha and we think, well, if Martha hadn't done what she did, who would have done it? And, and Jesus doesn't answer that question. He just says, Martha, the way you're living is not sustainable. I'm not worried about who would have set the table. I'm not worried about who would have made the food. I'm not worried about who would have served the meal. I'm just worried about you because your heart is not where it should be. And the things that you're pouring yourself into, eventually there's not gonna be much of you or anything else left. So Father, would you help all of us seek first the kingdom of God today? And would you help us trust that you have our best in mind? And when you ask us to do something that feels impossible, that you will give us the strength to do it. Lord, help us to examine our lives and where the knots are exposed, would you help us untangle them one at a time so that we might be unleashed to do that you, what you've called us to do and be filled with the heart like you will us to have. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.